Hello and welcome back to Thero Show. My name is Richard Matthews, and today I am uh, have a pleasure of having Shaheen on the line. Are you there, Shaheen? I am here. Happy to be on. Awesome. So glad to have you here. I know we were talking um, just before we got on. You're in uh, in Venice. It's Venice Beach, California. Is that where you are? That's right. Sunny Venice Beach. Glorious place to be. Oh man, I am a Southern California native, and I uh, um, we travel full time. So you know, for audiences following us around, we're still in uh, uh, Kissimmee in in uh, Florida, but my heart is in California. Probably always will be, because um, well, the weather is amazing, and there's no mosquitoes. Mm. Which if you've ever been to Florida, which I, I assume you have with all your properties you have out here. <laughs> it's like the state bird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, you know, there's I think some really great parts of Florida. I mean, it's such an amazing state and, you know, it's got such diversity and more importantly for me, it's a great place to pick up cash flow positive real estate to create recurring revenue. I'm not a real estate guru at all. I teach it as one of the pillars of my foundations course, which I teach people to create recurring revenue by starting e-commerce businesses. But Florida is really, I think, one of the best places to buy real estate in the next 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I said, my, we were talking before, my wife and I are looking at doing that in just in this area. Since we've been here, we spent, we got stuck here for the COVID pandemic for eight months and sort of fell in love with the state um, for a lot of reasons. But you know, like you were, we were talking before we got on just the difference between the price of properties versus rental. Like it looks really, really good out here. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally the case, you know, and um, there's some really cool stuff that happens there. Stuff you don't see. I mean, Florida is like, it's like rainforest. It's like wildlife. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of stuff that you're like, oh, wow. Like people live there every day. It's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. And I know, because um, being a California native myself, if you took some of these houses out here and you just picked them up and moved them in their property and dropped them in California where you are, the price would go up six to 10 times. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, anywhere in the country, you know, I mean, California is, I think, one of the most desirable places to live, despite all the haters and all the people that are like, oh, everyone's moving out of California, California sucks. No, California doesn't suck. We've had some some difficulties um, the taxation isn't great. They've got to figure that out to improve that part. But it's an amazing place to live and still the place where a lot of deals are happening. So if you're an entrepreneur, you want to be in one of these centers. And it's not the only center. There are other places, but California, New York, um, and even Florida, if you're in Miami and some of those places are great places to be. But I tell entrepreneurs this all the time that you need proximity to deal flow. You have to be in the thick of things if you want deals to happen. If you want to be in the film industry and you want to direct, you want to write, you want to act, whatever that is, you need to be. There's only one place to be. You need to be in Hollywood. Hollywood. You need to yeah. be. Yeah, there's no other place to be because you need proximity. By doing that, you have a higher likelihood of meeting people. If you want to be in tech, well, you can either be Silicon Valley or Silicon Beach, but you need to have access to that. You're not going to do it from the middle of the Midwest. It's it's going to be less likely for you to succeed. Yeah, but if you wanted to be in manufacturing, you'd want to be in the Midwest. There you go. <laughs> if, if you'd want to be in U.S. manufacturing, although I've got a good friend who's set up one of the best manufacturing plants in the United States. And believe it or not, it's in Silicon Valley. Really? That's yeah. interesting. What are, they, what are they manufacturing out there? Well, for the 
entire uh, time of COVID, they've pivoted their manufacturing to producing masks, some of the best N95s. They're one of the few new N95 manufacturers in many years here in the United States, and they started making PPEs and those kinds of things. But they do all types of products. They have literally unlimited capabilities of what they can produce. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, before we get too far into this, I want to do a brief introduction for our audience who may not know who you are. Um, so I'm going to go through your bio real quick because you got some interesting story we can dive into. So um, during the Iranian Revolution of 1978, your family had to escape to survive and ended up um, migrating to Los Angeles. At 15 years old, you left home with nothing but the clothes on your back, and then you created over a billion dollars in revenue by inventing the legendary smart drug known as herbal ecstasy, which I believe is the topic of your book that you've got sitting there. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So my book just dropped. It's called Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult. And it talks about that whole time, that wild ride from basically sleeping in the beach and abandoned buildings to creating a company that was worth over a billion dollars and created over a billion dollars in revenue and all as a teenager before the internet. That's insane. Um, and then you've gone on, you are the founder of uh, the or CEO of Accelerated Intelligence, which is a major Amazon FBA seller, and you run an um, Amazon Mastery course. Yeah, uh, that's right. That's yeah, right. And then you're the host of a podcast called Hack and Grow Rich. Yeah, yeah. We've got a podcast now. We've been going, I think we're on 128 episodes. We've got about uh, 65,000 listeners, subscribers. I don't know how it's measured in podcasts. And we talk about kind of the tips and tricks and hacks around life and business and entrepreneurship and how you, you know, you think outside the box, really. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to I want to get into some of this the the origin story of how you got to where you are today. Um, I mean, we talk on this show every good comic book hero has an origin story. It's the thing that made you into the hero you are. Were you you know born a hero, or were you bit by a radioactive spider that made you want to get into selling thrill pills as a teenager, <laughs> um, or did you start in a job and eventually you know move to become an entrepreneur? Basically, how did you become an entrepreneur? Let's do it. I love comic book heroes, but I'm not wearing tight pants, Richard. I'm telling you that right now. Okay. <laughs> I got to uh, draw the line somewhere. You got to have space for the goods. Got to have space for the goods. There you go. All right. So we left, my family and I migrated, and I will turn that tone off. I apologize about that. So my family and I migrated to the United States during the Iranian revolution. I was five years old, you know, just basically uprooted and moved. We had to go through Germany to the United States because you couldn't move directly to the United States. We were refugees. My dad took up some shitty jobs working at a pizza place. He worked at a dry cleaners, which he ended up working at for close to 30 years. And we had a pretty lower middle class, poor existence in a upcoming suburb in Los Angeles called Pacific Palisades, which was like hippie. There weren't really very many people there. Nobody really wanted to live there. And my folks managed to get a house there. Um, you know, one day the broker called them and said, Hey, there's this house that nobody wants. It's the only one within your budget in anywhere in LA. And if you want it, you can have it. And my parents said, okay, well, what's the problem with it? You know, sure. Yeah. I mean, if it's, you know, if we can, you know, get a loan on it and if it's, you know, meets our budget, we'll get it. And he goes, well, the problem is that the people in there won't move out. And, um, it's not just one person. It's an entire tribe of like Hare Krishna hippies. There's like an hell's angel thing going on there. 
So we went to see the house and the house was beautiful, big, big house in a, in a great neighborhood that was, was up and coming at the time. And the people that were living there were these crazy hippies. And apparently one of the guys who was like leading this like commune, there was a commune there, was um, somehow related to somebody in the police department. The other guy was somehow related to someone in Hells Angels. Nobody wanted anything to do with these people or getting them out. So they were selling this house for cheap to anybody who would take it. The guy just wanted out. And so my folks said, okay, it's what we can afford. Let's, let's give it a shot. And we moved in. And in the meanwhile, these folks were living like in the backyard, coming and going, you know, bringing their stuff, like basically camped out. There's this beautiful, because this was a glorious property back in the day, this beautiful, like huge swimming pool. They were using it as a koi pond and they were in wow. the backyard, you know, doing Krishna things and whatever it was, the things that they were doing, they were doing. They were like weird communy, culty kind of people. And I remember growing up, my folks would just bring them food. My mom would bring them food. My dad would bring them tea. And I'd be like, hey, dad, why are you doing this? Mom, why are you guys doing this? Like, we got to get, get rid of these people. They'd be like, just, you know, patience coming from an Eastern uh, philosophy, Eastern society. You know, we believe in hospitality. We believe in, you know, those kinds of things. And rudeness really isn't in our, in our culture, in our cultural makeup. So we were doing that. And, you know, my dad kept doing this until one day, one of the leaders came and said, hey, you know, uh, Mr. Shane, you've been so nice to us. Everybody has tried everything to get us out. They called the fire department. They called the exterminators. They tried to uh, force us out. They, they tried to evict us. And none of that. What, well, you guys have just been kind to us. Um, what can we do for you? And my dad looked at them and said, hey, you know, uh, we're starting a family here. Um, you know, we're, we moved from Iran. We don't speak very good English, but it would be great if we could, you know, have our property and have you guys move along. And he said, you got it. Give us a week and we're out. And so they basically killed them with kindness. They were so That's kind awesome. to them. And these people had no, you know, nobody had ever tried that before with them. Everybody saw them as a nuisance and just wanted to, to get rid of them. And they just kindly moved on, were drumming down the street and moved on to wherever else they moved on. And so now we're living in this community, but the community started coming up around us. Wealthy people started moving in. These houses started gaining double, triple, quadruple value. And all of a sudden, there's multi-million dollar houses around us, people moving in with their Ferraris and, and Porsches and fancy cars. And here we are, this poor family. My dad's working at a dry cleaners. We never had new clothes. The way we got clothes were we waited for some cool looking person to come into the dry cleaners and hoped and prayed that they didn't pay their bill and abandon their clothes. Didn't eat out at restaurants. Nice. Almost every meal was home cooked at home. Um, and I, I, you know, it's a funny story. I tell it often is that, um, you know, I didn't realize what a restaurant was until I was 15. I, I had some friends around me who were wealthy. And I remember one kid, it was like, you know, uh, my dad's out of town. He gave me his credit card. We can get whatever we want. Let's go. And we went to a restaurant and I was like, Whoa, wait a second. So you're telling me this menu thing, I can order anything. I can order a hamburger and fries and someone's going to bring it for me. He's like, yeah, yeah, get whatever you want. I was like, no, and I can get pizza too. Oh yeah, whatever you want. And it was like, holy smokes, you know, there's all these, all this wealth around me, all the stuff that I didn't have access to. 
I got to ride in a Mercedes. I'd never done that before. I got to, you know, experience all these things, people who had maids and house cleaners and like, you know, we didn't have any of that stuff. And I was like, whoa, you know, the going out and buying things whenever they wanted to. And I was like, man, I want to live that life. That's fun. Going out on boats, doing cool things, going to Chuck E. Cheese. Like all that stuff's amazing. We didn't have any of that. So how do you get that? I want that. And one day I woke up and I was 15 years old. And I realized that I needed to do something to get there. Like it was bullshit. I was beaten up all the time when we came here. I got my ass kicked every day and treated like second, third class citizen because it was during Iran-Contra. And I now wanted my up and comings. I wanted to, to do well in life. And I was like, okay, what's the path to that? And I asked my folks and they were like, well, you know, son, you got to become a doctor or a lawyer. I said, okay, cool. Let me do that. They're like, yeah, look at Mr. You know, uh, Mr. Rotifier down the street. Look at all the wealth he has. He's got a beautiful Benz and a house. I'm like, yeah, but that dude's fucking fat and old. And like, yeah, I don't want to be that guy. He doesn't have any time. He doesn't have two seconds. He leaves it early in the morning, comes back late at night. I don't want to be that guy. I'm like, how long does that take? They're like, well, eight years of school, four years of specialty, then four years to pay off your loans. And, you know, by the time you're 50, you can have a wife and a family. You'll all be fat because you can't, you don't have time to exercise. And then you can have all this wealth. Isn't that great? And I said, fuck this. I'm out. And I bailed. I left. I burned my ships and went off to seek my fame and fortune. I had no friends. I had no money. Um, my English was good at this time, which was, a, which was a big plus. And I went off. I slept on the beach. I slept in abandoned buildings. I hung out at the local community college, which was glorious. There was all kinds of beautiful females walking around, none of which I had access to. All this um, you know, education was going on. Also, I didn't have access to. I would sneak into the occasional class because I didn't have money to pay. I would hang out at a hot dog stand next door. I was vegetarian or I became vegetarian in those days. So I would eat just buns with uh, ketchup and relish because I somehow would manage to get those for free. And it was, um, it was easy. It was easy to survive like that. And I found a mentor. Um, and that was the real, you know, I know we're talking about superheroes, but I don't really see myself as a superhero. I really see my mentors as a superhero. And this guy was a superhero. He he was a pretty interesting character in those days, had long dreadlocks, uh, African-American gentleman, super amazing guy. And I managed to get him to mentor me. And with his mentorship, I started in the electronic music scene, which was blown up at that time, the rave scene. Yeah. And I started realizing that I could sneak my way or talk my way, influence my way into these raves into these parties and i could get in there the parties would start like at midnight and they would go to like six seven in the morning the next day i could go hang out have a good time meet people and then fall asleep behind the speakers in front of the speakers very loud behind the speakers it's just a hum and it's warm and i could just fall asleep and i would do that and one day i woke up behind the speakers i, I walked out and I was like, man, there's money being made here. How do I make money in the electronic music scene? Well, okay, obviously, it's the people who are throwing the parties, the promoters. They've got thousands of people here. They must be making a lot of money. Nope. Those guys always broke, running around, trying to figure out how to get away from paying people. Then I thought, well, maybe it's the DJs, the DJs music. 
nobody respected people who were playing other people's music in those days. And those dudes were always hanging outside with their hands out, not getting paid. Okay. So it's not the DJs. Who could it be? Ah, okay. It's the property owners. Nope. Most of those warehouses were broken into in those days. They were broke break-ins. People somehow figured out how to get into a warehouse owned by some big corporation. Uh, one guy would climb the, the power lines and steal the electricity. Another guy would figure out how to get the plumbing to work. And somehow, you know, the parties would happen and they would go on until the police busted them. Well, who do you think, Richard, were the people who were making the money in those days? So the first thought that comes to my mind is the drug dealers. You people are, who are correct. The people who are selling the, uh, the feel goods. That's right. The feel goods. You are right, my friend. So I was hanging out by the door and I noticed there were always these guys. They were dressed very nicely, always had a beautiful female with them they, or, or several. They had very expensive cars, nice jewelry. They were doing well in life, fancy apartments. And I thought, wow. What are those guys doing? Obviously, they're dealing the one drug that was highest in demand at the time, a drug called ecstasy, methyl dioxy, methamphetamine. Uh, not really anything to do with amphetamine, but it's just part of the, the molecular composition of it. Um, uh, what's now known as Molly or whatever they want to call it. So these people selling ecstasy in those days were making a lot of money. One problem, it's a very complex drug to manufacture and synthesize. And yeah. most of it was being produced in the UK and Holland. The supply of it had completely dried up in the US. It was near impossible to get it. There was a few suppliers producing it in the US, but it was few and far in between. And they were usually like uh, uh, chemistry nerds that weren't really breaking bad. They were just making enough for their friends. So the drug dealers were in a pinch. And I thought to myself at first, well, I should do this. This would be great. I should just deal drugs, deal X. I'll make tons of money. And then I hearkened back to my life as an adolescent and my life of crime and my endeavors in crime uh, from the ages of five to 13. And I had a little crew that I built up. It was every kid that had something major wrong with them in school. It was the kid that had the one arm that was like this and the kid who like, you know, had all the learning disabilities, me included, always had learning disabilities. It was the uh, kid that nobody wanted to talk to, the one that smelled too much, the one that was short. We had a little Greek kid named Cal with us and he was a, a, a little person. I think we can say little person. I don't know what you call them. Maybe that's belittling. Can we say midget? We can't say midget, but- we call them midget. I don't know what the word is. Okay. I don't know what the politically correct word is, but I hope I did not offend anybody, or I hope I only offend the right people. I say it all with love. Love that guy. And he was so cute, even though he was you know, 10, 11, 12, he looked like a six-year-old kid. So nobody would question him. He would wear baggy clothes. We would walk into the liquor stores. He would rush to the liquor area, the nudie magazine area, where he'd pick up the hustlers, the penthouses, all the contraband stuff. And this isn't really good superhero stuff, by the way. This is like uh, evil nemesis stuff. Um, <laughs> and we would create a distraction in the front doing whatever wacky thing we would do, uh, you know, create an argument, create, spill something, do whatever. And he would stuff his clothes with all this contraband and run out the back and we would sell it at school. It was a great business, Richard. It was 
lots of learnings in entrepreneurship, how to provide excellent customer service, yada, yada, yada. But the problem with it was, as I look back, was that we were fucking horrible at crime. We were really bad criminals because we would always get caught. Detention was a second home for us. The principal's office, I think, had chairs with our names on it. We would constantly be getting caught, constantly be putting in detention. We lived there. And, of course, in detention, who do you meet in detention is other the other, people, the other bad kids. The other bad kids. And they became even better customers. So our <laughs> business flourished even more. But then we got caught even more. So now 15, taking into consideration a life of crime, I thought, dude, you're an idiot if you do that. You're really fucking bad at crime. And you should not be involved in crime. You should not do it. You will end up on one of those TV shows where they'll be like, ah, he had everything going for him, but he took up a life of crime, which he was very bad at. I'm sure there are people who are great at crime. I was not. So I had enough fortitude, enough self-reflection to understand that crime was not going to work for me and I needed to figure out a way around. And it was boom, in that moment that it struck me. If I could come up with a legal, natural, all organic version of this ecstasy and sell it using just herbs and stuff I figured out, um, I can make a lot of money. I thought, hey, that's a great idea. So what did I do? I managed to get myself a girlfriend at the time. I don't know how I did it considering I was a broke ass motherfucker. I mean, I had less than I didn't have enough money to eat. And then I managed to get her to allow me to cook it up in her kitchen and prototype the product while her dad was away at work. Nice. I did not have enough money to buy a capsulating machine to make them into pills. So we would just roll them up by hand into balls as close to pills as we could get them. I put them in little baggies and everybody who we met, we would convince to try. And I would get them to try some of this, try some of that until one day, it happened. We had a formula that worked really freaking well. You felt good for hours and it was really nice. And now I had never tried ecstasy in those days, but I was told it was very similar. So I put my big boy pants on and I decided this is it. Let's do it. We're going to go into the club. I walked into the club by myself and I walked up to one of the biggest drug dealers at the time. And I tell the story because now you look at like guys like Post Malone and you know tattoos on the face, fine. Tattoos on the neck, great. People have them all the time now. Not a big deal. It doesn't make you unique. Back in the 90s, if you had tattoos at all, it was a big deal. And if you had tattoos anywhere near your face, it was a sign of clinical insanity. And so this guy had tattoos on his neck, going up to his face. He had the tear things. This guy was a straight killer. He was the biggest drug dealer in the club. He was dressed nicely. He had some beautiful women with him. He was, you know, had all the wealthy signs of stuff. And he was out of pills. I was at the right place at the right time. Ecstasy, remember, had dried up very low supply. I walked up to him. He's like, hey, kid, you know, I got nothing. Get the fuck out of here. And I said, no, no, I don't want to buy anything. I want to sell you something. He's like, what, you got ease? Are you a fucking cop? What are you? I said, nope, nope, not a cop. Do I look like a cop? Not a cop. I'm not even, I'm not even uh, 18 yet. Like, not a kid, not a cop. Like, what can we do here? He's like, well, what do you want? I said, well, you know, I got these pills that you can sell. They're all natural. No one's going to say, I'm not selling fucking vitamins. Get out of here. And I said, no, no. Uh, and it was in that moment where 
I realized that I had to burn my ships, that this was it. I had to lay all my chips on the table and make this guy sell my product in the club that night. The club was popping, lots of people there. And just in that moment, when I made that resolution, Richard, when I made that decision that I was not going to back down, that I was going to do whatever it took, I was ready to die that night if that's what it took. A couple partygoers walked up to him and he grumbled to them, talked to them. And then he looked at me and you see the sweat dripping from my forehead. This guy had one emotion and it was this, that was it. And he looks over to me, he waves at me. I hand him one baggie. He reaches over, grabs the entire backpack, takes it, takes the baggie, hands it to the party goers, takes the cash, puts it in his pocket, tells me to come back in a couple hours. Now, at this point, this could go one of two ways. Way number one, he loves it and will agree to sell it. Way number two, I could end up dying in a, a club that night. Obviously, I'm here, so you know which way happened. I came back in a couple hours. He was still there stone-faced. I couldn't tell that the bag had been emptied, but everybody was having a good time. The party was going off. He was happy. The girls that were with him were happy. So I was like, all right, well, maybe this is going to be okay. And, I, and he motioned to me, his little bodyguard moved aside. He motioned to me to come there and he was quiet. Good part of a minute, just looking at me, sizing me up. And I was like, okay, this is it. I'm going to die. Every negative thought in my mind went through my head. Like this guy's going to fucking kill me. This is the end of my days as a uh, drug dealer. And he looked at me and he said, kid, when can you get me more? And that was it. It was on. It was on. We went from one guy to a hundred guys. And I remember that night too. He was like, what do you call this stuff? And I was like, oh shit, what do I call this stuff? Fuck. It's herbal ecstasy. And we went from one guy to 100 guys to 1,000 guys to 10,000 guys to selling in 30,000 plus retail stores to being in over 32 countries around the world. And I had over 200 employees. I was hiring everybody that could fog up a mirror in Venice Beach. I was hiring them to sell the pills, to manage my offices. I was renting every building in the Venice, uh, all of the Venice boardwalk area and the Venice circle area, all around Venice. People were working for me. And I was working 22-hour days. And I got a call and I came in. My secretary was there pale-faced. The news had broke that we had surpassed a billion dollars in revenue. Wow. I want you to imagine, Richard, I was still a teenager. I had no formal education. In fact, I dropped out before high school. I was a pre-high school dropout. I think I had like a couple weeks in high school and I was out. I had no internet. There was no internet in the 90s, Not no functional internet. We had no mobile phones as far as smartphones are concerned. There was no social media. There was no Silicon Valley boom. None of that stuff. And we had broken a billion dollars in revenue. And I was in a panic, not because I didn't know what was going on. It was because I didn't know how much exactly a billion dollars was. 
And I remember having this panic about they're going to ask me that on TV. Sam Donaldson was on his way with Nightline. They wanted to have me on that day. They, he was in a limo outside. They had uh, Montel Williams was going to fly me out to his talk show. All the talk show hosts wanted me. We had two Newsweek covers. We had a piece with a cover mention in Details magazine photographed by uh, David LaChapelle. The cover is on my book. Um, New York Times, LA Times, London Observer called me the Willy Wonka of Generation X. It was an insane time. And there were a lot of crazy things that happened in those days. Uh, being a teenager, making close to a billions, billion of dollar in revenue. Um, the government came after us. We had the mob try to get involved with the company, the Japanese mob, the Yakuza tried to take us over. We had crazy events like Lollapalooza, which we were a major attraction at, where we were selling more pills than people were selling beer. People were like, fuck this. I don't want a beer. Give me that herbal ecstasy stuff. People were partying. We were partying with the Beastie Boys and with all the you know great bands of the time. And it was, it was a wild ride. So here's my first question about all of that. Do you guys still sell the Herbal Ecstasy today? I own the brand, um, but the saga of it has changed. The story of it has changed. And we will probably relaunch it in the coming years after the book and um, the film gets out. There's going to be a major motion picture based on the film, uh, based on the book, I should say. So at that point, we will probably relaunch it. I mean, you could probably still get it on the market. We do sell it on Amazon, but it's a different formula. It's changed into being a a male performance product, uh, mainly suited for athletes now. But what it was is no longer on the market, no. Is that because it's no, like what it was is no longer legal or like what what sort of happened to change the market? Right. They banned it. So there was this incredible ingredient. And again, for all your listeners, I am not a doctor. I have the medical sophistication of a chimpanzee, a little bit less than a chimpanzee, I would say, because they're pretty intuitive about that stuff. So please ask your doctor. I don't espouse the use of anything, any kind of drugs, anything like that. But it had a great herb called ephedra, which was uh, a beautiful, uh, I believe, Chinese herb. Um, and it had these amazing qualities. And when you mixed it with several other herbal ingredients, gave it a little bit of a a feeling like ecstasy in those days. And that was the ingredient that the government really didn't want out. So they restricted it. And with that, the formula for the product was gone. That's crazy. So how did you transition as a billion dollar company running these things to have essentially your product banned into continuing to grow businesses and doing what you do now? Great question. So that became a game of cat and mouse. I would go and I would travel and I'd go to the Amazon or I'd go to Fiji and I'd find like these incredible new herbs. And I'd be like, we're changing the formula. And they'd be like, great, we're banning that stuff too. And so that happened for a while until I got tired of it. And then I moved on to solving a bigger problem. I thought, hey, people have been smoking for thousands of years since the dawn of time, and they've been creating smoke, tar, and carbon monoxide as a result of it, the carcinogenic elements, carcinogenic meaning cancer-causing of smoking. What if there was a way you could smoke? You could get your nicotine, you could get your cannabinoids where legal, and not have smoke, tar, and carbon monoxide because those two things don't necessarily have to go with each other. Yeah. So I went through this journey 
of inventing and designing and patenting what now is known as the vape, the digital vaporization. And I did that early in the 90s and launched that company somewhere in the early 2000s um, when we had a, a really, really viable prototype and digital vaporization product. And that company went public. That was amazing. I exited that company just before, but that company went public, became the first vape company to go public. And that technology is the forerunner for what you see today in vapes and vaporization. And from there, Richard, I moved on to the Amazon platform. I moved on by creating another supplement called Accelerol, which is this great brain pill. It's still on the market. Uh, Accelerol or Focus Plus, both are fantastic. And I remember... Uh, this was back in the day where you could get Jeff Bezos on the phone if you needed to. He would respond to emails. He was not the world's richest man yet. And we heard through the grapevine that Bezos was opening up his platform, his glorious Amazon platform to third-party sellers. And that means that people like me and you, Richard, could start selling things on the Amazon platform. I thought, wow, that's amazing. Let me try selling Accelerol on there. So I listed the product. I went to sleep. All took me about 15 minutes. Didn't think much of it. Expensive product at that time was about 120 bucks for a box. Woke up in the morning. I had thousands of orders. And I thought to myself, holy shit, there's something to this Amazon thing. I'm going to devote a lot of time to it. And I started researching. I researched about Jeff Bezos, his journey to entrepreneurship, how he went from D.H. Hutton, a big Wall Street company, taking cheap money from Wall Street and multiplying it in Silicon Valley, creating value, being a customer-centric company. And I thought, this dude is one of the smartest guys in the room. And everybody is underestimating him. I'm putting all my eggs in the Jeff Bezos basket. And that's what we did. We started learning about Amazon. We started learning about selling on Amazon. We started to master it. And pretty soon we became the top Amazon firm in the country doing this for other people, Fortune 50s, Fortune 500s, startups alike. And the problem became that a lot of single players, individuals like me and you wanted to do it and to create Amazon companies, but they couldn't afford me. My fees were too much at this point. So I decided to create a course that anybody could use, an online course with a mentorship program, a coaching program, and a mastermind with a lot of sellers. And we're now close to 100 uh, different students. It's small. And they're from all over the world. And we get them on the platform, creating these businesses, finding great products. We teach them how to do that. And then we teach them how to create foundational wealth by creating predictable recurring revenue so they can take back more of their time and create more wealth, legacy wealth for themselves and their families. And that's what I do now. And by the way, for anybody listening to your podcast, I've got a one-hour course that teaches you how to do everything from A to Z on Amazon. And I'll offer that to anybody listening to use the code HERO. It's a $200 course. I'll offer it for free, uh, zero cost. Just if I can help any of your viewers and listeners create a business, stop selling their hours, make an impact in the world while living a better life, having more free time, uh, go to fbasellercourse.com or email me, reach out to me. I'm sure Richard will include in the show links. We'll include in the show links too. If you ask for the one-hour course, I'll offer that to you absolutely free of charge um, to see if I can help you on your journey. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's uh, that's an incredible offer. I know we run um, an e-com business on Amazon. We sell a couple million dollars a year of candles and fuels and whatnot. Oh wow! Um, and 
Yeah. So, I mean, it's a huge platform and I know um, that's a, um, there's, there's so much that goes on there. Um, and, you know, we're working on diversifying into other platforms as well um, with our company, but the uh, they're the 800 pound gorilla um, for driving revenue online. If you have products to sell that are, are good that the market wants. Wow. I love that. What, can you say what your brands are if people want to look them up? Yeah. Yeah. We have, uh, um, our brand is called Firefly Fuel. Um, and we sell, uh, we sell refillable glass oil candles and tiki torches and the fuels that go in them. Um, we have a manufacturing facility in Sarasota, Florida and, um, some other stuff, but yeah, the, uh, um, it's, it's started as an Amazon business. Um, and several years ago, you know, it was a couple thousand dollars a month and now we sell a couple million dollars a year. <laughs> wow. I love that, man. We got to have you on our show too. I didn't realize you were an FBA seller as well. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, um, I, I'm a partial owner in that business. Um, and been working with them since the, you know, since they started essentially. Um, and yeah, the, there's a lot of, a lot of good stuff that happens on, on Amazon. And I know we got started with, with Amazon. I think it was 2014, maybe a little earlier than that. Um, I, I had a uh, supplement company that I started for a while. I still have some of the product. Um, we brought that from zero to sixty thousand dollars a month in uh, in sales in like four months. And then uh, um, I had no no clue how to do inventory management like at all, um, yeah. and just destroyed that business um, on accident. Um, so and never really put the effort into rebuilding it. But the uh, um, we didn't have good inventory planning, so right as our product was running out, new product was getting shipped in only UPS lost like $30,000 worth of product. Um, and then it took a good four months to get it all replaced because of lead times back then. And by the time it was all replaced, the business was essentially gone. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Yeah, that happens. But it sounds like your firefly fuel is succeeding. And that that's the interesting thing. You know, people, Here's the thing. There's so much noise out there. You go Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. There's all these people. You're going to get rich. You can do this. You can do that. And there's so much noise like the Lamborghinis, boats. Yeah. People are like, whoa, wait a fucking second. I got to get out of my like mom's basement first. And <laughs> that when a real seller like you tells this story, people are numb to it. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just talking. But you created a business from nothing to $2 million gross revenue on Amazon. I mean, it happens. It happens all the time. And if you fall, I mean, like you said, it's not easy. You had some failures, you had some successes, but your successes far outweighed your failures. And you'll try some things that you'll fail with and you'll do some other things that you succeed with. But ultimately, these are real things. And I know that you live a great life with your family. You travel like I do. And while you're sleeping, there's somebody buying a Firefly Fuel and making you money. And that's, that's what we teach. I want that to. Yeah. It's magic. A, yeah. I want that to become a reality for people. And one of my challenges now that maybe you can give me some insight into how we can get more people on board with this is I want to empower people to see this more as a reality to see that, Hey, you can really do this on Amazon and create a product. It's not going to happen overnight. You're not going to be sitting in a Lamborghini uh, like one of these guys and uh, you know live in the live in the high lifestyle with caviar and private jets by next month. But you can do that in two years. You can build a seven figure business on Amazon from almost nothing. The cheapest access, uh, the the lowest barrier to entry in any marketplace. 
and in a couple of years, be ready to sell that company for a 10 time multiple. There's Amazon companies now. I don't know if you know about this, um, but there are aggregators now pumping millions of dollars from Wall Street over, actually, I should say billions of dollars of money from Wall Street. If we look at the aggregate of all the aggregators, billions of dollars from Wall Street is now being pushed to all these companies to roll up Amazon brands. So it was before where the value of these companies was maybe three times, four times their earnings. Now their net earnings, their, their EBITDA, now the value of these companies is double digits. We're seeing Amazon companies go for double digit multiples, 10 times what they're earning. So if you create a company that's earning, you know, let's say you're earning 2 million in EBITDA every year, you could be selling that company for 20 million, 30 million or more now to one of these roll-up companies who's going to take it and add it to their portfolio and sell it to a big Fortune 50, Fortune 500 company for 30 times. Or they're going to take the company public and it's going to get 30, 40, 50 times value in the public marketplace. So there has never been a better time to be an Amazon seller. And I can talk to you a little bit more about your brands online as well, offline, I should say. Um, but it's- Yeah, it's, it's insane the, uh, what's happening with that space. And the funny thing to me is like, I remember in 2014, we were talking about it being in its infancy, but now in 2021, I'm like looking back on it. I was like, that was like not infancy. That was like pre-birth. It's still in its infancy. <laughs> like yeah. the, the, we're, we're like barely scratching the surface of what's going to happen um, with the technologies and with things like the, the base finance level changing on how e-commerce is being done with, um, like I, there's going to be some major, major shifts that I think, um, crypto is going to have an impact on and the changeover in fiat currency is all going to have an impact on how shopping is done and how cons consumption is done. And Amazon's going to be at the forefront of a lot of that. Um, right. so it's, uh, it's, it's almost, it's almost like a requirement. Like you know, Amazon is, um, Amazon is like one of the worst companies ever to try and get stuff done with. They're, they are like, we have so many problems with them, but um, they're uh, the, like, you can't, you can't ignore them. That's right. Like it, yeah. You have, you have to deal with it. Yeah. They have no problem letting you know what your place is. You are playing in their sandbox, not the other yeah. way around. And they will let you know, they will arbitrarily, let you know that you're playing in their sandbox and you are irrelevant. You are a small part of a long tail. Now they, yeah. they make the consumer feel relevant, even though they're not yeah. all that's relevant <laughs> is the bottom line for them. And you know, there's yeah. a lot of practices there at Amazon that need to be improved. I agree. They need to be giving more attention to their sellers. They need to respect the sellers that are the backbone of the FBA platform, but that's not how Amazon works. Amazon is all about, you got to remember, okay, this, this is the thing. People don't understand. Much like Elon, much like Zuckerberg, Bezos is a fucking hacker. That's who he is. That's his DNA. He built that platform. He built everything that he's built. And I'll, I'll say allegedly, so I don't get sued. But he built all that stuff with hacker bones. And what I mean by that is that he thought outside of the box. He broke all the rules. And he did crazy things like when he couldn't get a hold of the um, 
what what is it the was it the Harry Potter books or it was some book yeah I think, yeah. yeah I think it was yeah it was the J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter books and this is all allegedly so I'm going to put the word allegedly in there to pre- prevent liability if this um, so we don't get sued but he went out and he bought those books at retail from all the other avenues that could get them because they weren't giving them to Amazon and then sold them for less than his cost why would he do that smartest guy in the room buddy customer acquisition because he knows that that guy who just bought that harry potter book had to start an amazon account to buy it from him for five bucks less than the other platforms and now that that guy has the amazon account he's going to get his diapers he's going to get his kids diapers i should say unless he's old he might be getting his own diapers and it's so easy now to just push a button and have stuff show up the next day push a button it was master planned and he yeah. is a hacker. So what does that bring about on the Amazon platform? Well, it brings about a culture of hacking. That's why people at first hack the reviews. And now it's getting harder and harder to do that. But in the early days, people were getting thousands of reviews. You would wake up in the morning and you'd have 10,000 reviews. There was Bangladeshi guys writing reviews left and right, review farms, all that kind of stuff. And they, and they realized that it eroded the trust of the platform. The second they realized that, they were like, oh, shit. We got to crack down on this and they cracked down on it. It became harder to get reviews. And it increasingly is becoming harder and harder to get reviews on the Amazon platform because they're realizing that people don't fucking believe them anymore. Although there is still some merit to it because myself included, I think I know better than everybody else. I, I am a, an Amazon expert, but everybody thinks they know better than everybody else. When you ask people, we've done focus groups and focus rooms where we have people there and we're like, do you believe reviews? Oh no. Yeah. Those are all fake. I don't believe them. They're paid for. Okay. Well, when you bought a product, what was the last thing you looked at? Well, the first thing I looked at was the reviews. Well, but you said those were fake. Yeah. But I can tell which ones are and which ones aren't. We all have this cognitive bias. We feel like we know know which ones are real and which ones are not. And it's, it's that kind of thinking that allows this platform. So I think it's, it's, it's rather ironic that a platform started by a genius, a brilliant mastermind who really is and was a hacker gave birth to this generation of sellers that are all hackers. You cannot play, and you know this, there isn't a seller I've talked to. You cannot win the Amazon game without doing something outside their terms of service. It doesn't happen unless you're a big, you know, fortune 50, fortune 500 brand, and you're doing tons of TV advertising. You've got many, many distributors selling your product on the platform and you just pump it in and it just becomes another channel and it sells. And all the millions and billions of dollars you put out in marketing causes people to buy your product. For example, you know, well, I'm not going to give out any specific names. Some of them might be a clients of uh, our company, but you know, any of these mega, mega companies that's yeah, it's like, like Nalgene or Yeti or some of those big companies that their, their brand is bigger than Amazon. I would say even bigger than that, but yeah. So, you know, any of those, those companies, if you're not one of those companies, you're not going to win. And I'll tell you what, all of those big companies, they all, the, the, the big corporate companies are the first to want to go against terms of service. And it's just the way it is. And Amazon knows this. They've made rules that you have to break if you want to win, you watch their videos, their videos are silly. They're like, okay, if you want to win on the Amazon platform, you start an Amazon account and you list your product and people will buy it because you're so great. Bullshit. 
You got to do 50,000 <laughs> kinds of things against terms of service to win. And everybody does it. You got to figure out how to get reviews. You got to figure out how to get ranking. You got to do promotions. You got to do giveaways. You got to do all this stuff. And all that stuff is goes against their terms of service. Now, do they enforce it all? No, of course they don't. They would be out of business. And do they enforce it equally? Similarly, no, because if they enforced a company that's making them $10 million a month, and there's lots of companies that are making them $10 million a month, uh, as a company that's not making them any money, the guy that's that's making them 100 grand a month and the guy that's making $10 million a month aren't going to get the same treatment. The guy who's making them 10 million is going to get a call from their account rep and maybe a slap on the wrist. The guy who's only selling 100,000, they're going to cut that account because they can do away with that. Small piece of a long tail and they'll let you know it. So yeah. Amazon has become this like living, breathing organism where they're constantly changing. They're trying to stay a hundred steps ahead of everybody else. And when they can't do that, they change things erratically, unpredictably in a way where just the chaos throws everybody off the train and then people cling their way back on. But you can't win by playing 100% by the rules. I've never met a seller who's been able to do that. Yeah. And that's, it's interesting too, because it's, it, it goes along with, your almost your entire origin story, which we've been talking about for a while now, of of, of playing against the rules, um, and it is. I want to sort of shift it into the next the next question I have, which is about your superpowers in all of this, right? Going from uh, creating a a supplement company that create dollar company to basically inventing e-cigarettes to getting into the Amazon space. Um, you know, we say every iconic hero has a superpower, right? Whether that's a fancy flying suit made by genius intellect or the ability to call down thunder or super strength. Um, in the real world, heroes have what I call either a, um, a zone of genius, which is a skill that you were born with, or you developed over time that really allows you to do what you do, right? Um, and to slay the villains, so to speak, in your clients' lives. And the way I like to frame it is if you look at all the skills that you've developed over your life, there's a common thread that ties all those skills together. And that common thread is where your superpower is. And in all of your experience building these businesses, what do you think your superpower is? Yeah, look, Richard, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I'm not the most creative guy in the room. And looking back over time, I'm really fucking bad at most things. I, I, I've got no illusions about that. I can look back at most of the things I do, I'm fucking lousy at it. Like anything that has to do with like fixing shit around the house, terrible at that. Anything having to do with like day-to-day -day management and operation of people, fucking horrible. I could do it, but I'm really fucking bad at it. Anything that involves being on a computer for a lot of time, graphic design, all that shit, the worst ever. So I look at <laughs> the list of shit that I'm actually fucking bad at and it's long dude it's like going to the store and getting one of those receipts that they give you that's like miles long. yeah I'm it's just a mile long yeah it's mile long it's there's no end to the things i'm bad at but there are a couple things that i'm good at and the main thing is what professor caldini talks about in his book influence it's influence i'm a good storyteller 
And by the stories I tell, I have the ability to impact and influence people to empower themselves. And that's really my superpower that I'm learning more and more about in these last few years. I'm great at creating an impact and getting people to do things that will empower them. I did it with Herbalex. I created more millionaires in, the, in those days than I think were created ever in, in that time by creating distributorships, different people had businesses and empowering people to do that. And now I'm capitalizing on that same superpower by empowering people to build these Amazon FBA businesses. Guys, when you hear us talking about this stuff, it's real. And it's there right now. And like Richard was saying, there isn't a better time. We are at the ground floor of this. Amazon is not going anywhere. If you look at, you know, Walmart or Walgreens, you know, that was started, you know, long, long time ago. And those guys started that. And there was, I'm sure, some asshole sitting around going, yeah, this isn't going to work. Because before those days, you know, you'd walk into a general store, you would tell the guy what you needed. That guy would go out into the store. He would pick the items. You didn't have a choice of brands. You could only get one thing. So if you wanted bread, you would get the bread that they had. If you wanted baking soda, you would take whatever brand of baking soda they had. You put it in a bag and he would hand it to you. The, the revolution that happened with these retailers like Walmart and uh, Piggly Wiggly and all these different types of uh, businesses that started was that they allowed people to walk in. You had a cart, you could pick whatever you want. It allowed for multiple brands to come into a marketplace. And that, that was a game changer. It changed the game. And there were some assholes in there going, yeah, this shit will never work. This is just, you know, it's a bubble and it'll soon, you know, what, and that's where we're fucking at with Amazon. That's what I want people to realize, that we are there on the ground floor. People are there now in the store where they weren't able to before, and they can pick shit out of the aisle and get whatever they want. And you can be at that forefront by starting an Amazon FBA business. And again, for any of your listeners who want to learn how to do it, learn to do what Richard and I have done, creating these multi-million dollar recurring revenue businesses that you'll be able to sell in a few years for a nice amount of money and retire somewhere somewhere nice like Richard has, um, check out my course. Um, I'll offer it to you for free. That's zero cost. It will cost you zero dollars to take the course and learn how to start an FBA business and launch it. Yeah. So the uh, the the influence as a superpower is actually really interesting because it's part of the reason why I started this podcast. Um, I had uh, you know we started this conversation off talking about mentors. One of my early mentors um, said something to me that um, eventually became the genesis of the name for the show. Um, and he said, uh, you know, uh, I was. I don't know, 18 or 19 at the time. And he said, Hey, someday you're going to have kids and those kids are going to have a hero. And if it's not, if you're not worthy, it won't be you. Right. And he said, cause they're, they're going to pick the people who influence them. Right. And if you're not worthy of the influence, you won't, uh, you won't, they won't pick you as their heroes. And I remember that stuck with me. Right. And I've got four kids now. Um, and so it's a, uh, it's pretty, pretty insane. But one of the, one of the things that I learned over the course of time is that influence um or i like to call it persuasion right for it's it's a neutral tool right and meaning you know it's like a hammer you can use a hammer to bang nails in and build a house or you can use it to you know bash someone's head in and go to jail for the rest of your life right that kind of thing um it's it's a neutral tool you can be used for good or evil and i always tell people that persuasion used for the benefit 
of the one being persuaded or for the mutual benefit of either person is what we call that leadership, right? Um, and persuasion used only for the benefit of the one doing the persuading, we call that manipulation. Um, and so when you're looking at the superpower, you know, the ability to tell stories and use, use language to make an impact in other people's lives, right? It's one of those things you learn when you have that skill, you're like, oh, it's, it's, it can be dangerous because, you know, if you string the right words together in the right way for the right person at the right time, they'll change their life based on those words. Right. And they'll take, you know, different actions and do different things. Um, and it's it's crazy to me that we, that you can have that kind of power over someone else. And that's where influence lives. So I think um, it it's it's one of those it's one of those superpowers that is. Maybe a cut above the rest, if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. That's true. And sometimes, you know, I, I, I would push back a little bit and say, you know, how do you know if something is good for the other person? We can never know. So at the we end don't. of the day, you just have to be a good person. And I, I was talking to somebody about this the other day about the subject of authenticity is that the greatest tactic of influence, I think beyond any of the pillars, any of Caldini's pillars, and Caldini is a god when it comes to influence, is authenticity. Just be a real fucking person. It's amazing. You don't need to learn any special tactics. You don't need to know any special scripts. There's, is that, that's not coming from me. I think that sound's coming from, I don't think it's coming. I'm sure what the sound is. I don't hear any sounds. Okay. Well, now it's gone. It sounded like a TV going off, but the, the greatest tool for anybody who wants to influence other people is just be a real fucking person. Be authentic. I, I was using the example of, we went to some, uh, place and somehow got suckered into going to some uh, presentation to buy a, a unit or something and something. And I was like, sure, let's go. Let's go see. The place looks nice. And the lady just came up to us and poor thing. I mean, she just went rolled right into the script. And I was like, okay, so stop the script. Just be a real person. Just talk to us. I probably, I, I'll buy what you're selling. Just just talk to me. And she couldn't do it. She was just going through the script and asking the scripted questions. And it just totally turned us off from whatever it was. Even if we were willing to buy it at that time, she talked herself out of a sale because she, she didn't have authenticity. She couldn't be authentic. She had the script, right? She had all the stuff they told her. She had the answers to all the objections. She had all that stuff, but she just wasn't a real person. And the scary thing about that is that nobody can teach you to become an authentic person. You can't fucking decide that you're going to get a book and become an authentic person. A lot of the people that we love, that we watch on TV, that we watch on the internet, the reason we like them, we can't explain. And a lot of the times you realize that that reason is because they're just who they are. They're an authentic person. They don't give a fuck. They don't care about you know all the scripts and the stuff they've been told to say. They're just being themselves. And that in and of itself is super important. The key becomes to how do you begin to discover who you are? And you do that through self-reflection. You do that by looking back and, and constantly improving yourself, constantly upping your game to becoming a better person. And if you do that, you know, sky's the limit for you. Yeah. And it's a, it's, it's an interesting process you have to go through and you have to, you have to choose that. You have to choose to just be who you are. And I think a lot of people are afraid of how the world will respond if they 
just let themselves be right so we put on masks and we wear we wear these these costumes so to speak of of who uh, who we think the world wants us to be and what the the problem with that is that everyone can see it and then you don't have like me i'm gonna be able to put your finger on it and be like i don't know why i don't like that guy or girl or why i don't connect with them right they can't articulate it but it's that there's there's a magic to authenticity yeah and you know what the reason is some people are actually assholes there are assholes in the world and yeah. if you discover that you're an asshole the first thing you got to do is deal with your assholeness you got to figure out why you're an asshole and then start working on yourself to to fix that <laughs> and then you become more authentic by that but in the meanwhile own it like own your assholeness, the fact that you're an asshole, you start owning it, then you start working on it and you start fixing it. And, and people even respect, even if you're an asshole, if you're authentic, people respect that. Look at the, you know, like that chef who's like, you know, throws the Gordon eggs Ramsey. on people's heads or yeah, yeah, that guy or the, the TV show guy who does the, you know, the people that are singing, whatever, whatever, whatever they are, you know, it tells them you're singing is awful. Right? Those guys are assholes, but they own it. They own it. It's there's there's no illusions. There's no uh, there, there's there's no uh, like you're saying masks. It's who they are. And then that's OK, because if that's that's who you are, you can you can work on yourself. You can become self-reflective. You can become part asshole, part authentic. You can do all that. But it's 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 really about building that internal fortitude, that internal strength and becoming reflective, reflecting back on things, and which leads to this, this growth mindset. I mean, we could go on about this forever, but that's, yeah. that's really at the end of the day what it's about. That's so, the ultimate superpower. So if, you're, if your superpower is influence and the authenticity that goes with it, the flip side of your superpower is always the fatal flaw. Right. And so just like Superman has his kryptonite or Wonder Woman can't remove her bracelets of victory without going mad, you probably had a flaw you've struggled with in your business, something that uh, you, you know, kept you from growing the way that you wanted to. For me, I struggled with a couple of things. I struggled with perfectionism for a long time where I would not ship product because I could always do a little bit more things to it and make it a little yeah. bit better. Um, very low standard to hold yourself to. I also struggled with uh, um, lack of uh, self-care. So I didn't have good boundaries with my time. I didn't have good boundaries with my clients, let them walk all over me, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until I started fixing those things that I really started to grow. Uh, so in that same vein, um, I think more important than what the flaw is, is how have you worked to overcome it so that you could continue to grow your brands and grow your businesses? Yeah, I mean, look, I think uh, over time, my biggest flaw has been that I was too trusting of people who didn't deserve it. And that I let people walk all over me when I was younger. You know, mind you, I did not have a, a any kind of business background. I didn't have any understanding of business and how business worked. So people stole from me and people stole a lot. People stole millions and millions and millions of dollars from me. And I just kind of took it because that's who I was back in those days. And that was my greatest weakness. I was young. I was inexperienced. I didn't have a lot of great people around me who were looking out for me. And people took advantage of me when I was, when I was young. And they saw all this wealth that I had created. And people wanted a piece of it. And they didn't feel that I was deserving of it. They felt that they were deserving of it. So I learned over time. I learned you know, that you need to verify things. You need to have great people around you that prove themselves. You need to have people around you that, 
prove their trust, prove their loyalty, not through their words, but through their actions, and that it makes sense to create tests and to test people around you. And over time to build up a core circle that has your back. And, you know, that comes down to, you know, building long-term friendships, building loyalty, and really creating a life for yourself where it's very difficult for anybody to take advantage of you because you have great people always looking out for you. So I have, I have a couple of questions that sort of come up from that story. And the, um, the, those are two things. One of them is what's your advice to young entrepreneurs who are running into that? Cause I know I was a young entrepreneur. I started my first business at 13. Yeah. Um, and I know for a lot of times all the way up into my early thirties, you run into a lot of that. Like you don't really get a lot of the respect that comes with age when yeah. you're young, even if you're successful. Right. Right. Um, so what's your advice for your entrepreneurs who are dealing with that? And then the second part is how do you, for someone who created as much success as you did in the short amount of time that you did, how do you judge relationships in a way that you under, that, that you can find out the people who are, who are interested in having a relationship with you because of your success versus because of they actually care about you? How do you learn that discernment? Yeah, look, so the first part, I'm going to tell you, the first part of that is you need to have people looking out for you and you need to have experts that you pay and you have to trust enough in them that they've got your best interest in mind. And once you start to get successful, you need to get a good accountant, somebody to handle the, the money part of it. You need to have a good lawyer, somebody who you trust. If you don't trust them, you need to get somebody else who can handle that part of it. And you need to have other people around you. So you need to find mentors, people who have done what you want to do and to be able to influence them to support you, to be able to influence them to have your back. So that's the first part of the, the, the equation. Remind me the second part again. So you created a lot of success at a very young age, right? which attracts people are become attracted to the gotcha. success okay. and not necessarily to like you. So you're talking about building yeah. relationships. How do you, how do you learn that discernment of people who are actually interested in having a relationship with you versus I just want a piece of whatever pie he's creating. So, so the first part of it is you have to be intuitive. You have to develop a gut sense about people. You have to study people. You have to understand people. And there's certain telltale signs where you can tell those things. Like I'm a student of a, a guy called Paul Ekman and his work, I should say of his work. I wish I was a student of Paul Ekman. And he studies microexpressions. Microexpressions are these little gestures that happen in a fraction of a second where people can't deny it and they'll give up exactly what they're feeling. It's great for lie detection and those kinds of things. There's people who study body language. There's people who study tonality. But at the end of the day, you have to, through dealing with a lot of people, create a sense of who's really out there for you and who's really out there to profit from you. And it's okay if people want to profit from you as long as it's a win-win and you're both doing well. But at the end of the day, it comes down to having a mentor, having other people around you that have your back that can guide you until your own inner compass becomes strong enough where you just know, yes, no, yes, no. 
Like right now, when people come around, I know if the deal is right or if it's not. I don't know how I know all the time. And I run all the normal due diligence on stuff, on deals. And I'm not always right. Sometimes I'm wrong. Sometimes great deals get away and sometimes terrible deals get through. It happens and it's okay. But if you do enough of those, you'll be in a place where you'll know. And then there's just common sense. You know, you got to always examine the motives of the people who you're choosing to believe and choosing to work with. And you have to be super smart. I mean, you know, again, it comes down to there's no hack to hard work. A lot of this is work. A lot of it is, you know, um, it's interesting because it reminds me of uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I've been uh, a student of Brazilian jiu-jitsu for some years now and still a beginner, still, still learning a lot. But in, invariably, when somebody who's heavier than you gets on top of you, and there's no way to avoid that. Eventually, somebody will get on top of you in a dominant position when you're grappling. You're underneath them, and now you have to get out. There's just no other way. You have to figure out a way, inch by inch, to get out from that position, and it, and it happens. But the more you get into that position, the more you learn how to cope with it, the more you learn how to calm yourself, the more you learn how to escape little by little and to get to a slightly better position each time. And similarly, I think with life and with people, it's the same way. Eventually, somebody is going to come around that's going to take advantage of your good nature. It's just going to happen. It happens to everybody. And you just have to be aware and you have to learn from those types of things. And then, then you can be in a position to decide, hey, I know I'm being taken advantage of in this deal, but in the bigger picture of things, it doesn't matter. I'm going to let it go or I'm not going to let that happen. Yeah, absolutely. So it just it comes with experience and learning those things. Um, and you know, I said, you said there's no substitute for, for hard work and I, the same kind of thing, there's no substitute for the experience, right? You, the hard work creates the experience and that experience is what sort of gives you the wisdom to make those decisions and, and, and grow, um, which is, uh, you know, lucky to start early, right. In an entrepreneur career. Um, but you, then you have a lot of, a lot of time to go for it. Um, but I do want to talk a little bit about, um, about the Amazon mastery specifically, um, and talk about what I call your common enemy, right? So every superhero has their arch nemesis thing they have to fight against in their world. Um, in the world of business, it takes a lot of forms, but generally speaking, we put it in the context of your clients and it's a mindset or a flaw that you're running into regularly, right? That you have to fight against. Um, so you can actually help them get the result they came to you for in the first place. And if you had your magic wand and every person who signed up for Amazon Mastery or took the free course that you, you've offered to my audience, if you could just bop them on the head and help them overcome that mindset. What's the, what is the common enemy that you have to fight with helping people start an Amazon business? Well, it's exactly what you just said. It's mindset, but mainly it's the, the main struggle that people have is perfection paralysis. And that's a, a form of insecurity. People are like, well, I'm going to do the thing that I'm going to do is going to be better than everybody else's. So it's mine's going to take longer and I'm going to just make it so perfect and whatever. But like you, you very astutely observed, that's a flaw because nobody gives a fuck if your thing is like this much better than the other. In fact, on Amazon, you could sell an inferior product and still do better if you tell a better story. There's lots of inferior products going for more money on Amazon just because they know how to tell a better story. They know how to take better pictures, write better copy, make a better video, describe the thing, do ranking reviews, all that stuff. So 
the fact is for most people, they get in their own way because they don't just fucking start. The people who win understand that this is going to be a fucking process. You're going to have to go out there. You're going to have to try something. You're going to have to burn a little bit of money. You're going to have to fail. And then you're going to have some learnings that you're going to come back with and you're going to succeed. But nothing happens without these three elements. And my friend, friend and mentor Wayne Boss teaches us knowledge, courage, and action. When you come up across a problem, the first thing you need to have is knowledge. You can buy knowledge, borrow knowledge, rent knowledge, but if we know how, the how, how to solve whatever it is, make an extra 50000 a month, do whatever it is, the problem that you want to solve, that gives you courage because you know how to do it. If you've been doing this for 50 years, making 50000 a month every day for 50 years, you're 51. You're going to have courage. You're going to have courage yeah. after year one. Okay. Courage gives us the ability to take action, the thing without which all other things are impossible. So knowledge, courage, action. When you have those three things, nothing is impossible. And again, I, I write about that in my book, Billion, which is just dropped. So anybody that's interested, check out Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult, not to be confused with the awesome TV show Billions, but um, equally as good story. My first question is, do you have the audiobook of that available yet? The audiobook will drop in the next 10 days and there will be an audible book. That is right. That's awesome because I'm a I'm an audiobook um user. Yeah, because uh, it's it's the way that I can get books in my head while I'm getting stuff done. So sure, sure. Yeah, <laughs> I'm always absolutely. a fan of that. Yeah. Um, you can go, I think you can go on to Audible or Amazon, add it to your wish list, and it'll be once it's released. Um, they will notify you. So that's that's a great way to go. And the who, first who did chapter- the, uh, Who did the narration for it? Did you do your own narration? I did. I did the narration myself. Yeah. Everybody asks that. So I did the narration yeah. myself. You know, it's got an intro by Chris Voss, the FBI hostage negotiator, who's super awesome. He's a friend of mine. He wrote Never Split the Difference. And he did high level FBI negotiations for years. He's one of the, the best-selling business authors. Jay Samet wrote a little blurb for us. Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari. Keith Ferrazzi, Never Split the Difference. Dr. Michael Bruce, America's Sleep Doctor. So we've got a lot of good people involved um, in the promotion of the book. And I'm, I'm super excited. You know, And these are the kinds of people that we also have on our podcast, Hack and Grow Rich. And I, I'd love yeah. to get you on at some point too, Richard. So I actually think talking about your book is a good transition for one of my my next questions, which is about your driving force, right? So the flip side of the common enemy, common enemy is what you fight against. Your driving force is what you fight for in your business, right? So just like Spider-Man fights to save New York or yeah. Batman fights to save Gotham or Google fights to index and categorize all the world's information, what is it that you guys are fighting for with your businesses today? Yeah, we're fighting for the individual to impact as many people as we can to create recurring revenue, to get people to stop fucking selling their hours because they understand that that's a pit. If you're listening to this right now and you've got to go to some job that you fucking hate, if you've got to do something where you don't own your time, it's a fucking travesty. There will always be people who do that and who don't know better and that's fine. But if you're listening to this podcast right now, if you're hearing my voice coming through these airwaves right now, you're looking for something better. You are somewhat a self-realized person. You realize that you can improve yourself, personal fucking development. So that is what we are fighting for. We are fighting to give you back your life, give you back your hours, and allow you to create a foundational wealth 
where you can have all those fucking things that you want without having to sell your hours. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, it's crazy how achievable that is today. Right. You know, it's, I, I sell, I tell people we're in the golden age of business. Right? Yeah. If you go back to what you were doing in the nineties and like what you can accomplish with your cell phone today would have cost you tens of thousands of dollars right. a month. It's true <laughs> and for free on your phone today. So it's, it's amazing what you can do. And, you know, we were talking earlier about how Amazon is shifting the economy. And I think one of the things that one of the things that people don't talk about is there is going to be a huge shift, I think, towards entrepreneurship over the next decade yeah. um, where there will be more and more people. And I think the pandemic also pushed more this way um, where you're going to see more and more independent contractor and more and more um, work from home and more and more entrepreneurship as the primary means of earning income Yeah. Um, rather than um, W-2, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, and I think if you're hearing this message now, there's no better time to start working on the skills and making the shift. Um, and especially with something like an Amazon business, it doesn't have to be something where you're like, I quit my job today and start an Amazon business tomorrow. It's the kind of thing that you could, um, I mean, you could literally build, um, build on as, as a side hustle. Um, and yeah, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of power in that. Agreed. Yeah. So, I only got a couple more questions for you. We've been going for a while. I'm going to skip a couple of them and go to one of my favorite questions, which is about your guiding principles, right? So one of the things that heroes, um, that makes heroes heroic is that they live by a code, right? For instance, Batman never kills his enemies. He only ever brings them to Arkham Asylum. So as we sort of wrap up this interview, I want to talk about the top one or two principles that you live your life by now. Maybe something you wish you knew when you started your own hero's journey as a teenager selling thrill pills. Yeah. Well, I think we, we, we cover that to a great degree. I think one of them is just being authentic, always be authentic, be a real person. I think the other one is become a student of influence, learn the pillars of influence, social proof, authority, likability, scarcity, reciprocity, learn about those and try to go out there into the world and seek excellence, not money. We don't chase money. We chase excellence. We try to get better. We try to improve ourselves. We try to develop ourselves. And those really have always been my guiding principles. Absolutely. I really like the idea of chasing excellence. That's a great way to put that. I've never really thought about it that way. Um, but it's, it's a good way to think about how you grow your business, right? Is, is you're always looking at how can I, um, how, you know, in terms of what you were talking about, how can I improve my you know, my scarcity, my copywriting, my storytelling, how can I prove all those things? Really what you're doing is you're, you're chasing excellence. Yeah. Um, and that's a, that's a great way to put that. I might stick that up on my, uh, my wall over here. <laughs> um, but when you're talking about the, the, that first principle of influence and you talked about the pillars um, one of the ones, I don't know if Robert Cialdini talks about this or not, is is uh, the storytelling aspect. And I tell people all the time that, you know, we're a storyborn people. And if I was going to practice anything to become a better entrepreneur, it would be learning how to tell 
and how to listen to how to exchange stories with other people because that's one of the foundational skills of anything that you'll do is storytelling yeah look i i feel like in general we talk too fucking much and don't listen enough i feel most people love talking about themselves but they really don't like listening but any salesperson will tell you a great sales pitch is no sales pitch at all. It's not you talking to someone, telling them all the benefits of your product. It's you listening to them and trying to understand what it is that you need. Oftentimes a sale can be made just by asking the right questions and leading the prospect to the determination that they really want to buy what it is that you're selling. That's the greatest sales pitch at all is that you just qualify and you don't sell. So, at the end of the day, I, I really think that, you know, that, that really is the best way to go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think that's a great place to, uh, to wrap our interview. Um, but I do finish all of my interviews with a simple challenge. Um, and I call, I do this to help get access to stories I might not otherwise find on my own because not everyone's doing the podcast rounds like you and I are. The question is simple. Do you have someone in your life or in your network that you think has a cool entrepreneurial story? Who are they? First names are fine. And why do you think they should come share their story with us here on the Hero Show? First person that comes to mind for you. Um, I think it's probably going to be my co-host, Bart Baggett, uh, my co-host on Hack and Grow Rich. Bart has an amazing story. He's, he's world famous. He's written a book called Success Secrets of the Rich and Happy. And I think he'd be a great person for your podcast. Awesome. Well, I'll see if we can reach out later and, uh, and maybe schedule him to come on this show. Um, so in comic books, there's always the crowd of people at the end who are chapping and clearing for, or cheering for the acts of heroism. Um, so our analogous to that is where can people find you if they want your help, if they want to learn how to build an Amazon business or you know pick up your book and read the, uh, the billion? Um, where can they light up the bat signal, so to speak? Light and I think more, and more importantly, who are the right types of people to do that? Sure. If you are at a place in your life where you want to get to the next level, create predictable recurring revenue, reach out and you can get me, email me directly. I'm dark zess and I'm going to spell that for you. D-A-R-K-Z-E-S-S at gmail.com. That is my direct email. I respond to all emails directly. It might take me a couple of days, but I'll get to you. So if you email me, I do get to email zero every day and every email will get a response from me or occasionally from somebody on my staff, but you will get a response from us. So reach out to me. If you want the one hour course, check out fbasellercourse.com. That's fbasellercourse.com or go to shaheenshayen.com, S-H-A-A-H-I-N-C-H-E-Y-E-N-E.com. Make sure to go to Hack and Grow Rich and subscribe and like. If you have comments on this, please make sure to leave them below. And the book Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult, which tells that whole story of that wild ecstasy ride that we were talking about, is available now on Amazon, probably will be available on Audible. You can get the first chapter. By the way, Richard, check out the first chapter. It's free on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, anywhere podcasts are found, you can get the first chapter of the book for free. Uh, and that is uh, a really well-produced, narrated first uh, episode that I think you'll like. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on today, Shane, and sharing your story with us. It's fascinating to hear all of the things that you have done. Um, and if you're listening to this and you are interested in the Amazon 
business. I can tell you from firsthand experience, it's absolutely worth getting into that space. Um, I think there's probably no better business today that you could be in maybe aside from potentially real estate um, is getting into the e-com game and learning how to sell product. Um, it's one of those foundational skills that will go with you no matter what you do in your entrepreneurship um, game. So definitely check that out, Amazon Mastery. And what was the uh, um, the the link for the free course? I'll make sure we have that in the show notes, but just sure, one more time yeah, for the audience. It's fbasellercourse.com. Reach out to us there, contact us on there, and, or just email me directly, like I said, and we'll send you the the one hour course. It's normally 200 bucks. It's A to Z, everything you need to know about Amazon. We'll send that to you for free if you mention the code HERO. Awesome. And Shaheen, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story today. I really appreciate everything that you have shared. Do you have any uh, final words of wisdom before I hit this uh, stop record button? No, I think that's it. I think we covered a lot of words of wisdom. So thank you so much for having me on, Richard. I appreciate you. There you go. Recording is over. <laughs>